Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where today I'm going to out myself as a heretic, well, by some people's uh, terms anyways. Uh, you might not think I'm a heretic by the time we're done this morning, but I'll let you figure that out. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of John, where we have not been for quite some time. Uh, and frankly, that's because I didn't know what to make of this passage. All right, so I said I didn't know what to make of this passage as we're back uh, in the book of John. Um, and that's typically a, it's one of the detriments of being a pastor if you have to preach every week is that you don't really have the luxury of just taking a few extra weeks to figure something out. You're expected to preach a sermon every week. And so I think probably as a pastor, uh, there were days where I felt like I'd really mastered the, the text and really understood it well and, and preached on it. And there were there were probably some weeks where um, I wasn't quite so certain, but Sunday came and you have to preach a sermon. So uh, in this case, I had the luxury of saying like, I don't know what to make of this passage. I've got too many questions about it and I don't know how to answer them. So I'm just going to not teach on John. Uh, this week, and I'll put it off. And so when I finally got time to take some in-depth look, to read a bunch of commentaries, and to uh, and to back up a little bit from the text, I think I've got a fairly good hold on what's going on there. But of course, a lot of uh, questions remain. And in the process of studying this and trying to answer those questions, this idea of heresy came up, um, and it's related to a question that we're going to see in the text. So we're going to read it, and then I'm going to I'm going to give you a few options while well, I'm going to kind of explain the text, and then I'm going to tell you about the heresy, and then I'm going to let you decide. So uh, let's just jump right into the text then. Uh, so we're in uh, John chapter 2, uh, right after Jesus has changed the water into wine. Um, we read, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade.'" And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in men." Okay, so as we're reading this, the first major question that comes up is, wait a minute, 
I'm familiar with the Synoptic Gospels, that is, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which cover largely the same content in, in many of the same order, in many of the same ways. Uh, and, and John is seems to be a lot different from them. So those three are, the other three are called the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, the Jesus clears out the temple. He, he drives out uh, the, he flips the tables, right? And he drives out the people selling pigeons. And he does this the very last week before he's crucified. So on basically the week of Palm Sunday, he goes into the temple and he drives them out. And so that's the very end of Jesus' ministry. And John has just started telling us about Jesus' ministry. And uh, all of a sudden we have him uh, cleaning out the temple. And so the question then arises, well, what gives? Um, some people would think, well, uh, Jesus cleaned out the temple twice. He did it one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end. Other people think, no, um, he only cleaned it out once and the synoptics uh, got it wrong. It happened at the beginning of his ministry or they arranged it there later. I should say maybe maybe not that they would say he got it wrong. And then others people would say, no, uh, it happened at the end of his ministry, but John, for whatever reason, has put it here at the beginning of his gospel. And uh, I fall into that camp. Uh, there's a few reasons for this. I don't think they're entirely important, but if you're a little bit curious, uh, we'll notice this. When, when Jesus talks about tearing the temple down, the Jews say it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, we know that Herod started rebuilding the temple in about 20 or maybe 19 uh, BC. And so if you add 46 years to that, you would get about the year 27 or 28 AD. And you're like, well, that math doesn't work out. Uh, well, the reason for that, that math uh, not working out that way is because there's no number zero, right? There was no year zero. It was 1 BC, and then the next year was 1 AD. Uh, and so um, if you add from 19 BC, if you add 46 years, and then you ignore, of course, uh, zero because it didn't happen, then 46 years would put you at 28 AD. Uh, and if you started in 20 BC, the dates are a little bit fuzzy in our history, uh, then that would put you at 27 AD. Okay, now we know that Jesus was born uh, prior to 4 BC. He wasn't born in the year zero, as you would sort of assume, maybe, if you haven't heard this before. But in 4 BC, Herod the Great died. Now, Herod the Great was the king who tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem when he sent the soldiers right to kill all the infants. And so, uh, that obviously couldn't happen after Herod was dead. So, we know Jesus was born before 4 BC. Uh, again, people argue about these dates, but this is this is what I'm relatively sure is the thing. <laughs> and in fact, I'm a bit, I'm somewhat convinced that Jesus was born in 6 BC. Okay, so if Jesus was born in 6 BC, and then you add 30 years, uh, because uh, Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that uh, Jesus started his ministry when he was about 30 years old. So I'm going to add 30. So 30 minus those six years would be 24. And then, of course, since there's no zero, no year zero, we're going to add another year. So that would put us at 25 AD, approximately, when Jesus started his ministry, if he was born in 6 BC, 
uh, as I believe he was. And so if that's the case, then this temple cleansing, which happened in maybe 28 AD, that would be a couple years after Jesus began his ministry. And that would mean um, that this was towards the end of Jesus' ministry. Okay, that's a lot of math. It's not super significant. But I think, um, looking at those numbers, I'm assuming that this is the temple cleansing that happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, and John has moved it here for because he's making a theological point. Okay, there's one other indicator in the text that that might be what's going on, because John makes this comment. He says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is verse 23, uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, up until this point in John's gospel, he's only told us about one sign, the turning of water into wine, and that happened at Cana in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And so, uh, now when, when John tells us that people were believing in Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing, that implies that other things were happening right before this happened. And so, although he has arranged this content directly after the wedding, after, the, after he records the water into wine at Cana, um, I think chronologically that's not, you know, that's not something that happened in distinct succession, okay? So I'm of the opinion that John put this part here because he wants to make a point. And what then is the point? Well, there's two things that are, there's two sort of big sections that are happening here, two things we need to discuss. One is that Jesus cleans out the physical temple, right? So in the temple, uh, you had many courts. You had the, the inside of the temple that only the priests were allowed to enter. Uh, and, and then you had the, the court of the Jews where Jewish men could enter. And then you had the court of the Gentiles uh, where uh, the Gentiles could enter. And most likely in the court of the Gentiles where people who weren't Jews could come in, um, there were people who were selling animals for the sacrifice. So if you came to bring a sacrifice to the temple uh, and you were close by, you just would actually bring your lamb or your oxen or, or your pigeons or whatever. But if you lived a long way away from Jerusalem, it was a big pain to do that. So you would sell the animal that you wanted to sacrifice and you would take the money and then you would bring it to Jerusalem and then you would buy a sacrificial animal there and then you would sacrifice that animal. Also, uh, once a year, you were expected to pay this. Uh, if you came to the temple, you would pay this temple tax, which was a half shekel tax. Now, if you came from somewhere else in the world where your money wasn't the right kind of money, um, you would have to get it exchanged to have an actual half shekel Tyrian coin. That's what they ex accepted for the temple tax. And so then you had people who would uh, exchange money uh, to get so that you would have the right coin to pay the temple tax. And they what they did was then they set up inside of the temple precincts. Now, the temple was not intended to be a marketplace. It was a temple. It was a place to come and meet with God. And what had happened, of course, is that there were parts of the temple that the Jews could enter, right, that were sort of more sacred. But then there was this court where the nations could come, where people who weren't Jews could come and worship uh, God. Uh, but that space that was designated for them had been taken up uh, by by people making, making money, right? And so they had been crowded out of the space that God had separated uh, had set apart for these 
for the Jews and for the nations to come and seek him. And so Jesus is very upset by this. And he says, well, you know, this is my father's house. This is where God has put his presence so people can come and be with him. And you're crowding that out in order to make your money, right? Now, they, of course, you know, in some ways, I'm sure they justify themselves by saying, hey, we're enabling this temple to service to happen because we're enabling people to pay their temple to, temple tax. We're making it very convenient for them to get officially, you know, uh, the right animals for the sacrifice. But the reality is they're taking the space for worship and they're converting it into a space for commerce. And so Jesus cleans it out. And, and then we have this comment, which we'll come back to in a little bit, in verse 17, where his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, so when Jesus cleans this out then, the Jews are upset. And when, when John refers to the Jews, I think I've mentioned this before, though, he's not referring to all Israelites, all descendants of Abraham. Uh, he's talking about the Jewish leaders, those who officially sort of represent the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, etc. And so these Jews then come to him and they say, what sign do you show us uh, for doing these things? Now, you'll notice... Uh, they're not concerned about, hey, is this guy right or not? They're not concerned about, is this a just action to clean out the temple? They're, what they're saying is, who do you think you are to make the decision of what is and isn't allowed in the temple? And so they want, uh, they're asking him, they're perhaps daring him to show some sort of sign, some sort of proof uh, that he has the authority to declare what's going on in the temple. There might be something here connected to the fact that Jesus has said, don't make my father's house a house of trade. And they might have picked up on this. Maybe not. The, the question of Jesus calling God his father will come up later in John, so we'll answer it then. Uh, but at any rate, what Jesus answers them is he doesn't give them a sign, but he says this. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. Uh, so there's a couple things that you could think are going on here, right? If you're listening to this, you could think like, okay, Jesus is daring us to tear down our own temple, uh, and then he's going to rebuild it in three days. And, and they're like, well, that's preposterous. Um, and that's what the Jewish leaders would be hearing from Jesus. He would be hearing them say, uh, they would be hearing him say, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they scoff at him, right? In verse 20, they say, look, <laughs> we've been working on this 46 years, and you're going to rebuild it in three days as if, right? Um, but then John tells us that Jesus is not talking about that temple. He is speaking. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And then, again, the author of this gospel tells us that when, therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so when I'm reading this first, and I'm trying to understand what it's about, and I'm, I'm getting caught up in these questions of like, well, is this the cleaning at the beginning of Jesus' ministry or at the end? Was there two cleanings? Was there one? Um and then maybe there's this question, they believe the scripture. Well, what scripture is it uh, that talked about building up the temple in three days? Uh, and this word that Jesus had spoken, they obviously refers to the comment he just made. But what about this scripture? 
and you know and then there's questions there's another question that comes up at the beginning of this which we kind of skipped by in John 2:12 which is this comment about Jesus brothers like what do i make of all of this uh, and why is it here if it's the same temple cleansing that actually happened at the end of Jesus ministry why does John put this this encounter here at the beginning and sometimes I think our problem when we study scripture is that uh, we can zoom in too much on the little issues and we can miss the big picture. And so I want to bring your attention to this big picture, and then we're going to explain a couple of the little questions, uh, and then we'll wrap it up, okay? So the big picture is this. This is an encounter, and this is a discussion that happens over the temple, all right, and there's two temples actually in view here. The first temple is the physical temple, the one that Jesus calls his father's house, the one that is being filled up by trade rather than by worship. And then the second temple being discussed is uh, the temple that is Jesus, that is literally his body, the temple of his body, as John tells us. And then there's a third uh, question of the temple, which might come up depending on how you do your theology, uh, which I'll get to in just a minute. I, I keep saying that, right? So, if this, if this encounter is about the temple, then there's two things at stake here. Number one, John wants us to take our attention from the physical building of the temple, that is, this place, which Jesus is, is very consumed, he's very concerned with this, right? His disciples remember this statement, zeal for your house will consume me. And this was a citation uh, from Psalm 69, uh, zeal for your house will consume me, and so we know that Jesus cares about the physical temple because he goes and he cleans it out and he calls it my father's house. So Jesus acknowledges that this place, that this temple was the place where God had put his presence. However, in Christ, things change, right? In Christ, the dwelling place of God stops to be uh, ceases being a building, a physical edifice, and it becomes something else, right? So the second part of this is that Jesus talks, makes this reference to the temple of his body, but nobody gets it yet. His disciples don't get it until Jesus is raised from the dead, and certainly we see that the Jews don't get it because John tells us the Jews start talking about the 46-year construction of the temple, and then John corrects that mis misunderstanding, if you will, by saying Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. And so what I think is happening here is that in the writing of this gospel, John wants us to understand what he's already said a few times, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, so that in Jesus Christ, God has dwelt among us, right? In Jesus Christ, you come to the Father. So, uh, there is, uh, let's see if I can pull it up here. Skip through some of my slides here. So, uh, in John 14, 6, for instance, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
right? So you used to come to the Father by going to the temple, if you will, in Jerusalem, and then you had all of this sacrificial system that needed to happen to purify you, and this was your attempt to come to the Father. But the reality is no one actually got to come into the direct presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But now Jesus has come, and Jesus says, my body is the temple, and I am the place where you come in order to have access to the Father. So it is through Jesus Christ that we come to have access to the Father. And so at the very beginning of the ministry that Jesus does, we saw the changing of water into wine. We, we saw this indication, this picture, if you will, that the old covenant things, that the, the old cleansing through these washing waters has been replaced by the wine, by the new wine of a new covenant, by the the blood of Christ, if you will, that there is a new way into God's presence, and that is not through the old, the, the temple building, you know, itself and all of the priestly stuff that happened through there, but in a new and living way that is through Jesus Christ now. And so this transformation, this transition from the old covenant way, the old arrangement between God and man, to the new covenant way, which is done in the blood of Christ and through the person of Christ, that that transition is happening. And so John gave us one example in water into wine, and now he gives us another example that is the old physical building, which was the house of the Father, to the new and living temple, which is Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't mention this in uh, in John when we were talking about the turning of water into wine um, uh, last time uh, because I, I didn't think of it at the time. But as I was <laughs> as I was uh, uploading it and uh, made the little image, the little thumbnail for the last video, I realized that that this water into wine is perhaps prefigured by the very first miracle God does when He brings. Egypt, when he brings the Israelites out of Egypt, what's the first thing he does? He turns water into blood, right? And so that water, the old external washing, has been replaced by a, a covenant that is made in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just like uh, Jesus is going to take a cup, right, of wine, and he's going to say, this wine, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood, so if you look back to the Old Testament, the very first sign that God gives it in bringing Israel out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land is water into blood. And then now we look in the New Testament, right, and there is a new bringing us out of bondage to sin and death into the freedom of the kingdom of God. And that's happening not through uh, water, but from water that has been turned into wine, right, which is representative of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, um, I just wanted to bring that out here because I'm talking about the temple and about this transition from old until new total sidetrack, uh, but I thought you might find it interesting as well. So, back to our text then. We have this, you know, the point, I think, broadly speaking, is that John wants us to start thinking of Jesus' body as the temple. And through the rest of the book of John, then we're going to see more indicators of how God is present in the temple that is Jesus' 
body. Okay, so that is coming, and that's why John puts it first, I think, to sort of cue us in, to get us thinking that way then as we read the rest of the gospel so that we will see this amplified and clarified. All right, now, uh, that's going to bring us to some of the smaller issues which I wanted to get to and discuss, okay? So in verse 12, and I, I skipped over this at the time, uh, we said, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and his brothers, all right? So I come out of a Protestant tradition, uh, and uh, a modern Protestant tradition, I should say, and so when I read his brothers, I think, oh yes, this is the other children that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born, right? In the Bible, um, when Mary is betrothed to Joseph, uh, and, and they go through this whole thing where Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and Joseph finds out uh, and the angel says, it's okay, it's from God, it's not from a man. Uh, then the Bible tells us that uh, Joseph took her to be his wife, but he did not know her in the biblical sense until after Jesus was born. And so I take that sort of as a uh, as a sort of a hint or, or imp that it implies that Joseph did indeed uh, have normal marital relations with Mary after Jesus was born, but not before. Okay, however, that's not how all Christians see it. In fact, there's two other theories on how you would explain this reference to Jesus' brothers. Uh, and if this is new to you, wonderful. And if it's not new to you, hopefully I'll say it in a way that is consistent with what you understand. So one theory says that they were cousins. Uh, this word brothers um, is in other, in a few other places, it is used to refer to people who we would use the term cousins for. Now, there is a term actually in Greek during those days that you could use to say cousins, and so it doesn't seem super likely uh, that this word, that, that these would be called Jesus' brothers if they were indeed his cousins. It seems more likely that the, the text would, that the, the text would just say Jesus' cousins. Uh, were there. Um, but nonetheless, it is a possibility. It's a small possibility. Uh, this is the one that Jerome uh, believed in back in the earlier centuries uh, after Christ. Okay? Now, there's another theory here uh, that these were half-brothers. In other words, the idea says that Joseph was married prior to Mary and that he had children by that marriage uh, and then those were, therefore, considered Jesus' brothers, right? Because their dad was Joseph, and Jesus' dad, uh, by <laughs> legally speaking, was Joseph, though not biologically speaking, right? And so that would make him, that would make them brothers, okay? So the Catholic Church officially teaches that Mary was a virgin before during and after the birth of Jesus Christ, that she never stopped being a virgin. And so when when Catholics refer to the Virgin Mary, they're not saying, they're not referring to Mary who was once a virgin and then after Jesus was born uh, was a normal married woman. They're saying she was and still remains a virgin. And the Eastern Orthodox Church also holds this belief that Mary was and uh, was a virgin and remains a virgin, to the point where they even define this biologically. Um, and uh, my, I'll try. I don't want to get too graphic, but they, uh, the belief was and, and the teaching was that 
the biological indicator of virginity uh, remained intact even through the birth of Jesus, miraculously, through some way. And if you're a Protestant, you might think, think, well, that sounds preposterous. But the reality is, it sounds preposterous that Jesus walked on water, right, and raised people from the dead. And if God can do miracles, he can do miracles, right? And so, uh, the, the official Catholic teaching and the official uh, Eastern Orthodox teaching on this matter is that Mary was a virgin and she remained a virgin, and that these brothers are not children of Mary and Joseph. Uh, they're children of a different woman. Either they are cousins of Jesus or they are uh, children of Joseph by a different wife. And, and so, uh, there are some implications of this that I wanted to talk about. Uh, number one, I mentioned that I'm a heretic, right? Uh, number one is, I believe that these were children of Mary after Jesus' birth, but that, according to official Catholic doctrine, makes me a heretic. And you would say, well, heresy, <laughs> heretic, that seems a pretty strong word. Um, and it often is, uh, when we use it, it's a very strong word, but heresy... Heresy is literally like affirming a belief that's not orthodox, that's not decreed officially as true belief. And so according to the Catholic Church's official decrees of truth, um, that Mary is a, a ever was and still is a virgin, um, then that would make me a heretic for not believing that. And so I'll give you some quotes, for instance. Uh, the Lateran Council of 649 uh, said, If anyone does not, according to the Holy Fathers, confess truly and properly that Holy Mary, ever virgin and immaculate, is mother of God, etc., etc., uh, and towards the end we read, um, gave birth to Jesus without injury, her virginity remaining equally inviolate after the birth, let him be condemned. Okay, so this uh, early council, um, this was not a, a a, a ecumenical council, uh, it was an early church council, uh, decreed that I, that I would be condemned for not believing this. Uh, uh, Pope Siricius, I hope I pronounced that right, the first uh, wrote to one of his bishops, um, and this was, he was pope at the end of the fourth century, so he started becoming pope about 386, I think, and this letter was dated to 392. He said, you had good reason to be horrified at the thought that another birth might issue from the same virginal womb from which Christ was born according to the flesh. For the Lord Jesus would never have chosen to be born of a virgin if he had ever judged that she would be so incontinent as to contaminate with the seed of human intercourse the birthplace of the Lord's body, that court of the eternal king. Do you see where this is going, right? And so the thought is, if, if Jesus is God, then the place where Jesus lived is a temple. And so if Jesus lived for a time in Mary's womb, then Mary's womb is a temple, and therefore you cannot defile this temple by putting human seed in it, okay? Uh, so Cyril of Alexandria, who lived at the end of that same uh, century and into the beginning of the fifth, he's, he wrote, the word himself coming into the Blessed Virgin herself assumed for himself his own temple from the substance of the Virgin and came forth from her a man, and all that could be eternally discerned while interiorly he was true God. Therefore, he kept his mother a virgin even after her childbearing. Right, so I bring this up, and, and I, I kind of wanted to talk about it because the the question then is one of temple, right? What have we been talking about temple? Is the temple the stones that were a building was made out of? 
um, that has now been torn down and the Jews are desiring to rebuild? Or is the temple uh, the place where Jesus lived for a time, that is the womb of Mary? Or is the temple Jesus' body itself? Is the temple Jesus in whom God dwelled? Uh, and so I, I put these three options together because our theology, the way we think about God, tends to, it doesn't tend to just stay where we set it, right? It spills into other things. And if we get some, some ideas about God, even a little bit warped, and then we push on them, then we can end up in some really weird parts, and then we can end up with some really weird theologies and behaviors. Okay, so here's what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1. He said, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That would make Jesus the temple of God. Uh, as John says in John chapter 2, he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? So, there's more there in Colossians, far more. We don't have time for that, okay? But uh, what John seems to be saying is that the old temple is gone. The new temple, if you will, is Jesus. And then as Jesus goes, he says, I will send you the Spirit who will indwell you, which is why Paul will later on say to believers, your body also is a temple of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit dwells in you. Okay? Does that make sense? So really this passage is about the temple, about the fact that God doesn't live in a building. He's living somewhere new, and he is, he is indwelling uh, Christ, if you will, and so Jesus is the temple of God. Now, at the end of this passage, then we see uh, this last little bit, which is where I want to kind of wrap up. So while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people believed in his name. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Now, this word entrust here and this word believed here, they're the same Greek root. And so there's a, a maybe a play on words here where Paul is saying many trusted him, but Jesus didn't trust them. <laughs> so many of these people, they saw Jesus doing these miraculous signs and they thought, wow, we believe in Jesus. But Jesus, because John says... He knew what was in a man. He didn't. He didn't turn himself over to them. He didn't allow them to take him and make them as their, you know, their mascot, their savior, their their king, their ruler, or whatever. Uh, because he knew what was in them, and he knew that their faith was not deeply grounded; that it was transitory, and that when he was crucified, these were going to be the same people, right, who were going to be shouting, "Crucify them!" And why? Because he knew what was in a man. Okay, so let's wrap up some important things for us to remember then as we consider, okay, Jesus' body is the temple. That's what John 2.21 says, okay? The first thing I want us to understand is that there is a major joining theme here, which is misunderstanding. 
we're told quite explicitly uh, that the disciples, after Jesus was born, they finally mis they finally understood. But the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they don't understand what's going on there. They're talking about the physical temple. Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. And so this is going to show up again and again and again in John. We're going to look for it where the where the Jews, they don't understand Jesus. And in fact, the disciples at that time, they didn't understand. Okay? Now, when Jesus was cleaning out the temple, perhaps at that time, verse 17 is true, where they said, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they understood a little bit of it. But when he was talking about raising up the temple in three days, the, even the disciples didn't get it. It was only later, after Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, that they go, oh, that's what he was talking about, about raising up the temple. Okay, now we get it right? We also see here that the people don't understand. At the end of this passage, right, some, some people are believing in Jesus' name, but Jesus won't entrust himself to them because he knows they don't fully get it either. And so I'm going to then cautious us, caution us to say, we have to be very, 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 very careful lest we also misunderstand because we are prone to do this. We take the things we are seeing and experiencing and interacting with, and we think that those define the way we read the Bible, right? So the Jesus is standing in the temple structure with the Jewish leaders, and he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And so they assume, oh, clearly he's talking about this temple, but he wasn't. Right, And so sometimes I think when we read scripture, we think, oh, well, it says X, Y, Z. And so clearly then it must refer to X, Y, Z. But we also are prone to misunderstand. Okay, And so um, we should be careful uh, lest we throw a bunch of stones at other people for understanding uh, differently. I'll get to that in one second here. Okay. Uh, and so I want to challenge you as we read through John, John is going to explain what stuff meant. Uh, and, and the question is, um, is that meaning, is that the meaning that John is saying this is the true meaning? Or is it the, the misunderstanding that perhaps the disciples or perhaps the Jewish leaders are that, that John is sort of just summarizing? Okay, so for instance, here John tells us that uh, in no uncertain terms in verse 21 that when Jesus said, I'll raise this temple up in three days, John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's not what the Jewish leaders are thinking. That's clearly not what the disciples were thinking at the time, because he tells us in the next verse that the disciples made this connection later after the resurrection. And so John is telling us as the reader, this is what is really going on. And when we might... There's a few places where John summarizes what the Jewish leaders are thinking that I think sometimes we as readers, we think that John is telling us that's what it really means, when actually what John is telling us is that's what the Pharisees thought it meant. But the Pharisees get it wrong. The Jewish leaders get it wrong. There are things in here that are written uh, that are what the Pharisees thought is, which are wrong. Right, And we're not supposed to adopt the thinking of the Pharisees. We're supposed to adopt the scriptural teaching. Okay, So I'm going to bring us all the way back then to this question of uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay, So 
I don't believe that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Um, and one of the reasons that I don't believe it is because this doctrine, this idea, as far as we can tell, the earliest sort of written indicator that anybody was adopting this thought about Mary being per a perpetual virgin, the earliest record we can find is back in what's called the Proto-Evangelion of James, the, the first Gospel of James or whatever, which was written, depending on who you talk to, maybe as early as 120 A.D., um, but perhaps more likely towards the middle or end of the second century, that is maybe 150 or later. So even if it was written at, let's say, 120 AD, that would be 90-some years after what happened right here, okay? So it would be um, over 100 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. That's the first indicator we have of this teaching in any sort of written record. Now, 120 years, uh, possibly 150, from the time something happened is a really long time, right, to have uh, authoritative sort of like eyewitness accounts, especially when someone is very revered. And so I don't trust that witness, it especially considering that the Proto-Evangelion of James was never canonized, it was never recognized as scripture by church leaders, okay? And so also over the ensuing next couple hundreds of years, leaders in the church, many of them argued for the perpetual virginity of Mary, but some of them didn't, right? And so there was this debate going on. And so if, if you're a Catholic or if you're an Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian uh, and you believe this doctrine, it's largely based on the uh, general consensus of your faith tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so if you're a Catholic, you respect and you trust the reliability and the trustworthiness of Catholic Church leaders throughout the centuries. And if they decreed that this was true, then you take it on their testimony, essentially, uh, that it was true. And they uh, looked back, as far as we can tell, to this Proto-Evangelion of James. Okay, and if you're Eastern Orthodox, that's sort of the same reasoning as well. Uh, they were part of that church up until 1000 AD, uh, when the split between Eastern and, and Catholics uh, happened. And so they look back to those earlier church fathers and they would say they believed it, therefore it's true, or they taught it, therefore it's true. Now, uh, so I would say if you're, if you're a Catholic or if you're an Eastern Orthodox uh, believer, then you believe that because you believe these people. And I can't uh, authoritatively condemn that, right? Now, I look at those men... And I see what, what Jesus indicates, or what John indicates of Jesus in the end of John chapter 2, where he says, Jesus did not entrust himself to these men because he knew all people and he knew what was in a man. And I know uh, what's in a man because I am a man, just like Jesus knew what was in a man because he was in a man. And I know that there's a strong... There are often strong impulses and strong pressures for us to believe or say or do stuff. And there is pressure even on a believer to speak dishonestly or to shade the truth or to 
to win battles, to win arguments, to preserve pride or influence or position. And so I am, if you will, inherently suspicious and distrustful of leaders in the Christian church. And when this doctrine was officially decreed by the church, by the late, by the 300s, by the 400s, by the 500s AD, uh, we have written evidence to indicate that a great deal of corruption had uh, leaked into some of those, like even bishop-level positions in the church, uh, where one bishop was invited to a, a council and he and he basically refused to come because he said when it when these gatherings get together, nothing good ever happens because uh, people who are ambitious for power and and money are sitting in in seats of influence, um, and so. Uh, one of the bishops in writing basically said, I'm not going to be a part of that because uh, I don't trust the people in a th in those positions of authority. And if in those days he didn't, um, he didn't trust them, then then I, looking back, would be like, I, I know people haven't changed, and I know I don't, frankly, I don't trust my politicians to tell the truth because um, I, I know what kind of people often get into power uh, in these type circumstances. And so I am inherently distrustful of, uh, of doctrines uh, that were decreed by church leaders two, three, four hundred years after Jesus and his disciples had already died, right? Two hundred years is a very long time for jockeying for position, for, for rumors and for myths to sort of grow up. And so I am more prone just to say, I want to go back to the scriptures. These were written very early on by eyewitnesses and, and people who talk directly to the eyewitnesses. They're not, they're not written there in most cases to like develop very nuanced doctrine. They're to give us foundational truths. And so I'm far more comfortable just going back there. But I also want to acknowledge, right? Like I'm not going to condemn or... Uh, they used to use the word anathematize. I'm not going to want to decree an unbeliever anyone who does believe those things. Because the reality is, is that it could indeed be true uh, that Mary was perpetually a virgin. It's not, it's not biblically disproven, shall we say. It's not biblically prohibited. There are logical and reasonable ways. And if you trust those early church authorities to have been accurate when they define this doctrine, uh, then that's a, a a rational way of approaching the situation, I would say. I'm not comfortable doing that, uh, and so I won't affirm that doctrine, which will make me a heretic, theoretically, or, or um, technically, according to the definition of the term and the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Uh, and I'm, I guess that's just the way it is, right? Uh, I wish I wasn't declared a heretic by anybody, but um, I'm not going to affirm a doctrine to avoid that title. So, thankfully, there were hundreds of years in, in the history of the church where to be a heretic meant you would be exiled, persecuted, or even killed, uh, and, and everybody was always disagreeing over what truth was, and so it was pretty much ugly on every side, and thankfully we were we seem to be mostly past that, uh, but unfortunately, some of the ways in which Christians talk about each other, uh, to me, give me this vague and uneasy sense that we might be headed back into that sort of an increasingly polarized and antagonistic way. 
And so uh, my point here is not to prove that the Catholics or the Orthodox um, believers are wrong or heretics. It's simply to point out that their reason for that belief is based on uh, trust in a, in a governing church hierarchy during uh, the 300s, 400s, 500s, maybe even 200s AD. Um, and they have a trust in that structure that I just don't share. And so they reason out rationally that this belief is reliable and I um, I won't go there. I don't believe that. But that doesn't mean they're not my brothers. I still love them and I respect them. And my hope is by explaining this, if you're a Protestant and and maybe, you know, when I was a younger man, I used to think, oh man, you'd have to be an idiot to believe that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that was really uh, proud and presumptuous and, and a not God-honoring attitude for me to have. And I repent of that. And I say, these are my brothers, they're my sisters, they're smart people. They really desire to honor God and to understand truth. Um, and, and they just accept as a presupposition the reliability of, of earlier governmental uh, structures in the church that I don't, um, I don't trust. Um, because I know it's in a man. And I know that uh, over the course of 200 to 300 years, that's a long time um, for unhealthy things to grow up in the church. So I hope you've been encouraged by this, uh, not only to see and to recognize that the old covenant, the old way of meeting with God, come to a building, has been replaced with a new way of meeting God, come to Jesus Christ, right? That's the whole point of the passage. But also along the way, I hope you've understood, um, if, you're a, if you're a Protestant, I hope you've understood that the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, uh, they don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary because they're foolish. They believe in it because they trust the early church uh, teachings. Um, and ironically, you might be surprised to note that Martin Luther and Zwingli and even John Wesley, I think, uh, believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And they were not Catholic. They were not Eastern Orthodox. They were Protestants. And if on the other side, if you're a, a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, why don't Protestants uh, believe in this doctrine? Uh, the answer is, well, because we don't see it explicitly taught in Scripture and we tend to be a little bit more distrustful of what's in a man, generally. And so we also think that when the early church was defining some of these doctrines, that the human nature was deeply involved and that it got some things wrong. Okay, and I hope there's room enough for all of us to say Jesus Christ is Lord. We do believe that he was born of a virgin um, and not by uh, a human impregnation, if you will. The Spirit uh, birthed this life in her. Uh, and so uh, hopefully we could come together on that and, and say, as men and women who together uh, believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and willingly and joyfully bow before him, to the glory of God the Father, that we can recognize each other as brothers and sisters, and we can respect each other, and we can come together to greater unity in the church. Uh, God bless you, and we will see you again here back next time on the Apostles Mailbox. Mm -hmm.